Podcast Network. My name's Cameron Riley. Welcome to the show. Joining me for a chat today is one of my favourite scientists working in the world today, Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Now, Aubrey was on the show three years ago, almost, August 2005, a few months away from three years ago, episode 42 of G'day World. Now, and we talked about his work. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Aubrey de Grey, he is probably the world's most visible, um, if not most active, and he's probably both, proponent of curing ageing. He believes that ageing is something that we can fix if we have enough money and enough researchers working on it over the next few decades, and we can reverse the ageing process and essentially push the healthy human lifespan out over the course of the next 25, 50, 100 years. We can push you know, the healthy human lifespan out to an unlimited... Oh, well, I think, I think uh, when we last chatted about it, he said about 500 he thought would be the maximum. But um, now this is a very controversial position. Just even on Twitter tonight, I've been having interesting debates with people. Some people think it's sci-fi. Some people think that it's immoral. People bring up all sorts of questions about the Earth's resources, etc., etc. Now, I, I don't go into a lot of these in depth with Aubrey on this show because we did that back on episode 42. I'm going to put a link to that episode in the show notes of this show. And maybe you might want to go and listen to that one before you listen to this one or afterwards or whatever. The reason for having Dr. DeGray on the show again today is that there's a conference coming up at the end of June that his organisation, the Methuselah Foundation, is running. It's called Understanding Ageing and there's a, a free session on Friday of June 27th that he talks about in the show where there will be a number of expert speakers on the subject of ageing including Dr. DeGray that will be speaking. And if any of you are in the California area, the LA area, you might want to um, get along to that if you're interested in this subject. It's certainly very exciting. I mean, think about the idea that within our lifetime, we may be able to stop aging being a cause of death. Uh, We may be able to stop old age like we stopped the Black Plague for all intents and purposes or any number of other... Uh, diseases that have afflicted humans over the last two million years. Uh, Aging is a sort of a a meta term for a number of things that cause our bodies to break down. And, uh, you know, we're starting to make some progress in identifying what those are and figuring out how to stop them and reverse them. Anyway, uh, now I I will apologise before we go into this. Uh, There was something wrong, I think, with the microphone in Aubrey's PC. We had a couple of goes at trying to fix it didn't really work so uh, we we soldiered on there's a lot of hiss and a lot of static in the background on his end I'll clean it up as much as I can in post-production here but uh, there's still going to be a it's going to be a little bit noisier in the on uh, the show than you're perhaps used to but I I think it's quite listenable okay and it's certainly a a fascinating subject so uh, if you go through to the show notes you'll see both a link to the earlier episode I did with Aubrey plus also a link to the uh, Methuselah Foundation's website where you'll be able to Register for this free session that's on June 27th, and I encourage you all to get along. On with the interview with Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey, welcome back to the show. Now, if somebody had asked me when it was that you were on the show last, I would have said maybe 12 or 18 months ago, and checking my records, it was actually 
almost three years ago that we last chatted. And I know you've been very busy since then. I have seen you on the Colbert Report. I see that you have a new book out, Understanding Aging. I see that you were a speaker at the TED conference, I think, uh, last year. How's it all going? Have we been making much progress in defeating aging? Well, I must say I can't complain. I mean, of course, it could never be fast enough, what with 100,000 people dying of aging every day. But yes, we've been doing pretty well. The Methuselah Foundation has succeeded in doubling or trebling its budget every year for, well, ever since we started. So back since 2003. And we are funding, as of this year, probably more than half a dozen different projects around the world, covering most of the various strands of research that need to be pushed forward in order to make this all happen. We're getting donations from an increasingly wide range of people. And of course, as you say, we're getting a lot of media attention. Uh, the publication of the book that you just mentioned, Ending Aging, which came out about six months ago, was a big and important advance because it was the first time that these ideas have really been presented comprehensively in print for a general audience. And certainly the books had quite a lot of attention. Now, I think the last time I was talking to you, you were still working at the University of Cambridge, but since then you've gone full-time with the Methuselah Foundation? That's right. At the time that I spoke to you last, I had already gone part-time at the university because I was increasingly having my time taken up by Methuselah Foundation activities, and especially because I had just started being the editor of an important journal, Rejuvenation Research. And as, both of, as all of those activities gradually grew, so it became impossible for me to find any time to spend at the university, and also the Methuselah Foundation became into a position where it could pay my bills. So it was obviously natural for me to quit that position and work full-time at the foundation. I recall seeing that Peter Thiel, one of the founders of PayPal, has invested some money in Methuselah? Yes, certainly that's true. Our number one donor at this point is Peter Thiel, who was indeed one of the founders of PayPal and who has since gone on to lead an extremely successful hedge fund, Clarion Capital. About 18 months ago, he gave us half a million dollars unconditionally to spend on research, and he also pledged us another $3 million which was a challenge pledge. In other words, we would get the money as we got other money in from other people. And that's all been going pretty well. Uh, last year, we brought in a substantial fraction of what we needed to bring in in order to capitalize on that pledge. And in fact, Peter decided we'd done so well that he gave us the entire million for last year anyway. So we're hoping to carry on doing that this year and next year and get the whole lot. Well, that's excellent news. You know, over the last uh, couple of years, I, I talk about your work a lot uh, with, with people both on this show and, and just in general life. And 99 times out of 100, the response that I get is either disbelief or shock or people say it's immoral or they think it's science fiction. In fact, I was having a debate with somebody on a forum just last week who said they kind of knew you because they were at Cambridge with you and they thought your work was sort of sci-fi. What kind of responses do you tend to get when you go out and you talk to people about your work in the general public when you're doing the you know, media tours, etc.? Do people take it seriously? There's definitely an increasing um, seriousness there, no question. There's basically been a process of gradually 
essentially smoking out my critics and uh, getting them to go on the record to explain why they think that what I'm saying is not realistic or not scientific or not plausible. And lo and behold, when people have been forced to go on the record, the reasons that they have for thinking this have turned out not to stand up to any sort of scrutiny whatsoever. There was a particularly important episode orchestrated by the, uh, the magazine, the US magazine, MIT Technology Review, um, which was unfortunate enough to be essentially hoodwinked into doing a bit of a hacky job on me back in 2005 and which uh, was rather chagrined to discover on further inspection that the people whom it had trusted um, with regard to their opinions of my work were unwilling to go on the record to, um, to, to, to elaborate. And so they actually ran a little competition called the Sense Challenge uh, to get people who thought that my ideas were crazy to explain why in writing and to have their criticisms and my rebuttals of those criticisms evaluated by neutral experts. Um, and rather to my surprise, some of my colleagues actually did submit entries to this challenge, um, and the entries were very unceremoniously thrown out, and in fact the judges um, were inclined to describe the entries as the things that were unscientific, far from my work being unscientific. So that was quite a slap in the face for some of my more um, careless critics, shall we say. And at this point, I think it's fair to say that the only people who are seriously criticizing me are, first of all, a very small rump of people whose vested interests are just so extreme that they can't bring themselves to take it seriously. And then, of course, a, a number of people who just simply don't know very much about what I'm saying and are just judging its credibility on its conclusions without judging it on its logic. And those judges were no slouches either. I remember that they included Rodney Brooks, uh, the director of MIT's AI Lab, who's been on this show as a guest. Uh, there was Craig Ventner, the guy who led the effort to crack the human genome using shotgun sequencing. Uh, Nathan Mervold, former CTO of Microsoft and now runs uh, his own um, intellectual ventures company. And I, in fact, remember the, the quote that you mentioned before about the your opponent's submissions being unscientific. I remember reading that in a quote from Nathan Mervold last year where he was quite harsh as to the uh, scientific approach of the people who were trying to uh, refute your theories. Anyway, let's um, move on and talk about this conference that you are running, the Methuselah Foundation is running at the end of June at uh, UCLA. Uh, I believe it's called Understanding Aging. Tell us a bit about it. Well, really, the conference has two purposes, and actually, it's really split into two parts. So the part that you just mentioned, which is called Aging, the Disease, the Cure, the Implications, is the name that we've given to the opening session on the Friday evening, the 27th of June. The remainder of the conference, through the Saturday and Sunday, has a different name. We call it Understanding Aging, uh, Biomedical and Bioengineering Applications, uh, Approaches. And we are really targeting two very different audiences for the two conferences, the two parts of the conference. Okay. So the part that I probably ought to talk about most is the Friday evening. The Friday evening will be focused on public policy. The talks will not be hardcore science, whereas the talks through the Saturday and Sunday will be hardcore science. Mm -hmm. And the big thing about the Friday evening is that we're not actually charging any money. People are absolutely free to come along at no charge. So we've booked actually the largest hall at UCLA, the Royce Hall, which is a big concert hall that seats 1,800 people, and we're going to do our damnedest to fill it. 
the idea here is to really get the defeat of aging onto the political map to make it clear that California, which of course has really um, forged for itself a leadership position in regenerative medicine by passing this um, legislation to allocate $3 billion over 10 years to funding such work, um, it, it has really thereby de facto given itself a leadership position in the war on aging because ultimately aging is the number one application of regenerative medicine in the longer term. Yeah, I've been uh, watching the US presidential elections. I haven't seen any of the candidates yet stand up and say that they are going to cure aging as part of their presidential platform. Have you had any interest yet at all out of politicians in the US or the UK for supporting your work? Well, it's early days, and really this conference and this particular session of the conference is our first big push, a big concerted push to make that happen. Essentially, we want to leverage the fact that regenerative medicine per se is now accepted as a legitimate and positive thing for politicians and policymakers to be interested in and to be supporting. And now we simply have to really explain what that means in practice and what what regenerative medicine will be used for as and when it begins to emerge. Because ultimately, you know, you don't vote for $3 billion of expenditure unless you know what you're doing normally. But to a certain extent, that is what's happened this time, that, that you know, there is something of a degree of ignorance on the part of the general public and certainly policymakers as well with regard to exactly what effective regenerative medicine will mean in terms of therapeutic um, advances. So for people listening to the show who haven't heard our earlier interview and aren't familiar with your work, let's talk about SENS, Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. Tell us a little bit about what the Methuselah Foundation is doing and, and what your research is trying to achieve. Sure. So the essence of the approach that we take to combating aging is we recognize that the human body is a machine. Obviously, it's a very, very, very complicated machine, but it's still a machine. And therefore, it's reasonable to approach the question of how we might combat aging by looking at the way that we combat the aging of simple man-made machines and extend their functional life. And if we look at, for example, cars or airplanes or whatever, then we can see that it's actually very effective to apply a straightforward repair and maintenance approach to the extension of the lifespan of a machine. In general, if we take cars, for example, most people don't actually look after their cars particularly well, and so the car has a pretty defined lifetime determined by how well it was built in the first place. But if a car is lucky enough to be owned by people that fall in love with it enough to do really comprehensive maintenance to it, then, as we know, the car can last essentially indefinitely. And that's why we have cars still taking part in rallies um, that are 100 years old. They certainly weren't built to last 100 years. So the same principle applies with the human body. And, it, of course, that's just the first step. The question then is, can we actually apply that principle? And the big breakthrough I made back in the year 2000 was to realize that actually we did know enough to describe, first of all, all of the various types of damage that accumulate in the body as ongoing side effects of the normal functioning of the human body, in other words, side effects of metabolism. And secondly, that we could actually describe how to repair and alleviate those various types of damage. So in most cases, that consisted of simply bringing together 
work that was already going on, or at least work that was already accepted as legitimate. And just in a couple of cases, I made contributions of my own in terms of suggesting new approaches to the to addressing particular types of damage. But the big breakthrough was to realize that in unison, all of these things added up to what looked very much like a really comprehensive strategy, a strategy that might therefore be applicable to people who had already accumulated a certain amount of damage. So in other words, people who are already in middle age and that could rejuvenate them pretty thoroughly so that they would not be biologically 60 again uh, until they were maybe chronologically 90. Um, now, of course, that's not completely elimination of aging, but it's getting close and it's functionally equivalent to the complete elimination of aging because 30 years of extra time that we buy for these people by these therapies is, of course, a very long time in technology and allows us to move forward and improve the comprehensiveness of the technology so that people can be more thoroughly rejuvenated the second time around, 20 or 30 years down the road, and so on and so on. And thereby allowing people to avoid becoming frail and decrepit and diseased as a result of their age indefinitely. Now, I'm sure you get the same sort of pushback on this subject that I do, but obviously a lot more often and at a much higher level. Let's tackle some of the typical responses that I get from people and see how you answer them. What about the question of uh, the planet running out of resources if everybody all of a sudden lives for an extra couple of hundred years? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that this, the overpopulation problem, insofar as it may be a problem, should not really be seen in isolation. It should really be seen as a choice that people will be making. Just in the same way that 100 years ago, people made the choice between having a large number of kids and letting most of them die because of... Uh, infectious diseases, or alternatively, using the knowledge that had been gained in terms of hygiene and vaccines and antibiotics and so on, and having fewer kids, they chose the second of those alternatives. They chose to lower the birth rate and the death rate rather than keep them both high. And it'll just be the same sort of choice again. I'm not saying that this will necessarily be an easy choice, but ultimately it's a choice. We, are, we, we will, with these technologies, be expanding the range of options available to people and that's something that I think we have a duty to do. After all, we are talking about saving lives here and alleviating suffering. Therefore, the sooner we develop these technologies, the more people will have the advantage of that choice. Do you get much pushback from religious fundamentalists of any particular persuasion? Actually, I'm pleased to say that religious people in general do not seem to have too many problems with this idea. Of course, there are knee-jerk reactions from religious people, just as there is from everybody else. But only a little bit of thought seems to be needed and discussion seems to be needed in order to get them to see that actually not only is the effort to defeat aging compatible with Scripture, it's actually mandated by Scripture. Because, of course, as I say, it involves striving to alleviate suffering and to save lives which is something that Scripture is fairly unequivocal about in terms of it being a good thing to do and a sin not to do. So actually, it's pretty easy to get through to religious people that this is actually God's work. Well, that's interesting to hear. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Emprise. Now, you set up the Emprise as part of the Methuselah Foundation to encourage research into the area of ageing. Tell us about uh, it in a little bit of detail and also what success it's had in the last couple of years. Sure. So the M Prize, which used to be called the Methuselah Mouse Prize, 
was actually the thing for which we set up the Methuselah Foundation in the first place before we started actually directly funding <coughs> individual research projects. And the idea of the M-Prize is really to, to raise the profile of longevity research in a manner that doesn't trivialize it. And so what we do <coughs> simply is we offer money to people who can break the world record mouse lifespan. The idea is that if you can get mice to live a bit longer, then that constitutes progress towards the therapies that might be able to get humans to live longer in due course. And so the structure of the prize is very straightforward. If you beat the world record, then you get a proportion of the prize fund that's determined by how much you beat the previous record by. There are actually two prizes, one very simple, straightforward one for an individual mouse, another one that's more scientifically structured and in particular focused on late onset intervention, the interventions that are only begun during the second half of the mouse's lifespan. And so those prizes between them have more than $4 million in the prize fund now, provided, of course, by the general public over the years. And that prize number is still growing. And we're getting to the point where the prize is actually influencing what work is done. So, of course, people are um, competing for the prize just by um, doing work that they were going to do anyway for other reasons, and they're involved because they see that this is a way of getting more attention for their research. But also, to a certain extent now, there is a shift in people actually doing work specifically for the purpose of trying to win the prize. And it's all about extending the lifespan of a mouse. Uh, what is the typical lifespan of a mouse? That varies from one mouse strain to another, but even the longest-lived strains that are used in the laboratory have a, an average lifespan of something around three years. So the world record for an individual mouse at this point is just under five years. And the world record for mouse lifespans being extended through late-onset interventions is less than four years. And do you think that the research is going well? Have we seen significant progress over the last few years? I think the research is going well, but actually so far the results that have succeeded in giving extensions of mouse lifespan are probably not the same research directions that will make the next leap towards um, much bigger lifespans. I think that the ways that have been used at the moment are reaching diminishing returns because ultimately they are not repair and maintenance approaches of the sort that we focus on in the Methuselah Foundation. Rather, they're ways of, if you like, tuning the existing genetic machinery that the mice have. And of course, there's only so much that you can get out of a car by tuning the engine. Eventually, if you want more, you have to replace the engine or get, put a better one in. Um, it's the same with the human body or indeed with the mouse body. So things like caloric restriction and growth hormone receptors only have a certain benefit to us? That's right. Color restriction ultimately works by getting the mouse or the other, whatever organism it may be to readjust its metabolic priorities uh, and effectively to hunker down and do more with maintenance of the body and less with um, reproduction, for example, and growth. And um, there's only so far that that can go, basically. And the uh, genetic um, tricks that have been used that have succeeded in giving substantial extension of mouse lifespan have essentially been tricks that um, emulate calorie restriction, that essentially um, that, that trick metabolism into thinking that there's less food coming in than there actually is. So if it's not these current lines of research that are going to deliver the end results that we need, what are the sorts of research that we should be focusing on at the moment? 
the main things that need to be done, and most of these are being followed, they're just not actually yet delivering results in terms of mouse life extension. Um, the main things we need to do are things that we can see are really rejuvenation therapies, repair and maintenance therapies. So a lot of this comes down to stem cell therapies. A lot of it comes down to development of gene therapy. Gene therapy, of course, still has a long way to go to become safe and effective for humans, but we're actually pretty good at it already for mice. Um, some of it may involve more invasive interventions involving tissue engineering. Uh, a lot of it will involve um, more traditional approaches, pharmacological approaches and vaccines and so on. Uh, so, you know, a wide range of different things have to be done all at the same time, very much in the same way that if you take a rather beaten up car into the garage, then the mechanic's going to have to spend some time doing a lot of different things to it before it's really functioning again. Now, I think when you were on the show three years ago, you said that if we had enough funding put into ageing research that in the next 25 years, you felt we could extend the average healthy human lifespan out to about 150, correct me if I'm wrong there, but is that the sort of timeframes that we're still looking at and the age benefit that we expect to get? So you've got that almost right. Um, the, the prediction I made then, which I still think is correct, is that the therapies that we should be able to develop within the next 25 or 30 years, that we have maybe a 50-50 chance of developing in that time, should be able to add roughly 30 years to the lifespans of people who are already in middle age by the time that um, those therapies arrive. So what that means is that the maximum lifespan that would be conferred by those therapies would be maybe 30 years more than the maximum lifespan that we've seen so far, and that is 122. So that means we're going out in the region of 150 for the maximum lifespan. Mm -hmm. However, the critical thing is that that will be achieved by people who have been rejuvenated. In other words, have been given these therapies when they were already in middle age. And so in practice, those people will actually be able, in principle, to live a lot longer than 150 because they will benefit not only from the initial therapies, but I think we have a good chance of developing in the next 25 or 30 years, but also they will benefit thereafter from subsequent incremental improvements to those therapies that make them even more comprehensive and rejuvenate those people even more thoroughly. As a result of the benefits they get in the next 25 years. Okay. So listen, if people want to book tickets for the event that you're running at the end of June, what's the best way of doing that? Going to the Methuselah Foundation website, I suspect? That's certainly right. mfoundation.org. There are links to the two conference component. <clears throat> if you're a scientist and you want to hear more about the hardcore biology that's being done in all of these various areas, then you'll want to take part and, and participate in the whole conference, which goes through starting from June the 27th through to the whole of the weekend, June the 28th and 29th. And in, those, in that conference, um, there, there will be over 20 hardcore scientific talks talking about cutting-edge work in regenerative medicine applicable to the aging process. Um, if you're more of a layman and your main interest is in understanding how this will actually be disseminated, how it will be paid for initially and how it will be made available to the public in due course, then the conference component that you really want to take part in is on the Friday evening, the big three-hour session with numerous very high-profile speakers from public policy and from biotechnology and all areas that are relevant to this. And that, as I mentioned, is completely free to attend. Um, it, there's uh, a dinner afterwards that's available for just a nominal price. The conference itself is free to attend, and we hope to see you there. Before you go, uh, whenever we've had 
Ray Kurzweil on the show. He takes us through his health regimen of 200-odd supplements and uh, gets blood drained out of his body and replaced each week and that kind of thing. What about yourself? Uh, Do you have a personal health regimen that you follow or is there anything that you can recommend for the rest of us to make sure that we stand the best possible chance surviving long enough to be able to take advantage of these therapies as they come down the line? Well, unlike Ray, I'm genetically very lucky. So even though I don't take anything unusual, I have really good health. I seem to be aging very slowly. Ray is pretty unlucky. He started coming down with type 2 diabetes in his 30s. So I think it's quite sensible for him to be taking fairly aggressive measures to keep that under control, which he certainly is doing very thoroughly. So I think the message is that there's no one size fits all, so to speak. It's important to pay attention to your body, to understand what works for you and what you need and what you don't need, and to do your best to keep aging at bay using what's available at the moment, but always understanding that what's available at the moment is really pretty ineffective, except for people who are unusually unlucky in one or another respect. And therefore, that the real thing that people have to do is whatever they can, whether scientifically or in terms of public policy or in terms of having me on the air, um, to hasten the development of much more effective therapies. Because it would suck to be the last human who died in the time when they didn't have a choice about whether or not they died from ageing, kind of like the last human who died from the Black Plague or something, right? It would kind of suck, yes. (laughs) okay well uh look thanks very much for coming on the show again Aubrey. good luck with the conference and uh, keep up the good work we're all counting on you thanks for having me on the show